Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. This is our fourth episode. Uh, we're recording on Saturday afternoon, and so if anything happens that invalidates what we said before, please forgive us. We have a guest today. His name is Wilfred Chan. He's going to be talking to us a bit about Hong Kong and a bit about Taiwan. We're very excited to have him on, um, and uh, we can send you highlights from that interview through our newsletter. Again, you can help uh, support us through iTunes or any of your favorite podcast apps. But the best way that you can support us is to sign up for our newsletter through Substack. And that is at timetosaygoodbye.substack.com, I think. But, you know, anyone who types in a URL from a podcast is crazy. And so I assume that it's okay if I get it wrong. Like always, I'll introduce my two co-hosts, Tammy Kim and Andy Liu. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. Good. There's been a lot of questions. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if a lot is the right word, but there have been a few questions <laughs> about why we chose the name Time to Say Goodbye. And uh, yeah, I wanted to give us a chance to discuss it. Like everything else that launches, we had a lengthy, protracted debate about what to call it. <laughs> and this is what we landed on. So... Um, yeah, Tammy, do what, like, do you want to? I don't know whose idea this was, but I think that you and I were the ones that were pushing for it the hardest. Uh, we're, like, w- what's our name? Man? No, you and Andy were. I was against it. <laughs> you were against. <laughs> yeah. I got outvoted. <laughs> you guys can explain. <laughs> oh, uh, that's right. So okay. it was. It was. So Jay threw it out. I have to. I also have to confess there was some other ones that might have been funnier. <laughs> And edgier, but I am in an industry that's quite serious and a little humorless, and so I think having a problematic podcast name—it's not worth it at this point in my life. Yeah, it was all—it ra- was all racial slurs, so. <laughs> <laughs> which which I thought was funny, but apparently, if you're in the academy, it's not that funny. Our uh, our right, right, so to explain it, uh, yeah. Time to Say Goodbye is a song that was sung by Andrea Bocelli um, and Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman being the very famous sort of pop opera person. Andrea Bocelli, I guess, is also pop opera. And uh, it is a song that is beloved throughout <laughs> Asia, I would say. Is that, <laughs> is that correct? Like, I think every Asian person over the age of 50 loves this song. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those standards like... Uh, like, do you remember this period of time when, like, every old Korean person, Tammy, would sing? Uh, you, we, I don't know if you went to these things, but <laughs> I went to them all the time where once a month my parents would drag me to their, like, Korean meetup. Oh, God. And there would be, uh, they would they would all have, like, two beers and be a little bit drunk. And then somebody always had a karaoke machine <laughs> and then they would sing Yesterday. <laughs> I don't think that era is over. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that era is definitely not over. But I'm... <laughs> That area is good. Of, yeah. Um, and uh, Time to Say Goodbye is kind of <laughs> like that. It is, a, it is a standard for first generation uh, immigrants. And we thought that, okay, I thought that it would be funny to name it after that just because we could play the music, which I also find to be very funny because it's so melodramatic. And so ridiculous, and yet it's still kind of emotionally affecting. <laughs> did you see Andrea Bocelli singing in the in the in the church in Northern Italy? He did oh, like a concert no. by himself with like an organ player in this empty cathedral oh in my God, Italy. No, 
No, it was. It was Are you on his fan list? Was like... <laughs> you get alerts. <laughs> no, no, but I. I did see it on Twitter somehow, so I must be in some sort of algorithmic (laughs) uh, Andrea Pacelli world. (laughs) But that's why. And then there's some uh, double meanings that you guys can figure out yourself as the listeners. But yeah, that is that's why we um, I don't know. That's what that's why we that's why we named it that. So uh, one thing that we wanted to talk about this week was, you know, a few just because the news is also bad. Um, we want to talk about a few things that might have inspired us or made us think a little bit. Uh, Tammy, is there anything this week that, that sort of got to you or, or in the same way that Andrea Bocelli <laughs> Aria would, would get to be? I was touched by the kimchi I made, which turned out really well. And mm-hmm, Oh, you did? Very proud. What, what, I had to what substitute a couple use? things. That was a little sad. Uh, the recipe of my heart by my parents. I don't know. <laughs> I was showing them pictures on Cacao Talk as I was making it. So, were, were they were they okay with it, or were they were they unimpressed and mildly disappointed? <laughs> I'm sure they were like, "That's a ninety percent," but they got over. But is is there like a is there a secret ingredient in the in the Kim no. household that you that your family <laughs> really? Uses? So the gochujaru I used is special because we actually like did it by hand last time I was in Korea, so that was nice. Oh, you yeah, ground like it by we, hand, or you well, dried it? Well, we chose it. it, and then we had the guy at the market. You know, and we no, we got the peppers, we cleaned them, and then we took them to the market to be ground up. So that was oh cool. wow, yeah. Oh, and you still mm-hmm. have it? Okay. Uh, do, do you got it as fresh yeah. peppers? Mm-hmm. That, that that pepper dried, dried. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's two t- there's two things. There's gochujang, which is like the thing that is now for some reason like a staple of right. hipster tech people in oh, San really? Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah menus, they'll like right? send me. They'll send like my friends will send me text messages and stuff. You know, they're like white guys, and they'll be it's like, the, <laughs> yeah, it's like, the new sriracha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but gochugaru is uh yeah it's just like red chili flakes basically yeah. right i mean i don't know how else to explain it yeah um i made kimchi a week ago and i used mong chi's recipe and i did not realize that mong chi is controversial at all is she is she <laughs> oh well i, I mean, don't know yeah. i i asked you to and you uh, andy was like is mong chi fine and i was like yeah she's fine she's great and you're like Eh, well, I don't know, but she's okay. Nah, like, I, I heard from it. friends it's oversimplified, too salty, too sweet. Um, you know, not legit Korean. So I was asking if you guys had a secret secret website you guys use. <laughs> only for, only no for you guys. Website. I feel like Mangchi is like very <laughs> useful, and I've endorsed her in the past. But I do think her technique is very vulgar. <laughs> I showed it to my parents, and they were appalled. For for our listeners who don't know, Mangchi is. I don't even know how we would explain it, but like maybe it is sort of like the Guy Fieri of Korean <laughs> cooking, right? Or or uh, the Rachel Ray. Oh, Ma- yeah, Rachel Ray, actually. I think, is the right. That's not bad. Rachel Ray is the right. Yeah. Uh, no, but Rachel Ray can actually cook, though. That <laughs> was her whole thing. She was just yeah, the persona. So I mean, Julia Child actually was a little bit like uh, complicated. Who's like a chef that does simple things and does them? I don't know, like Alice Waters, maybe. Like where it's like, oh, cooking is actually not that hard. You just have to right. do X, Y, and Z. And her recipes are really s- simple. And she got started on YouTube by right. doing these really kind of funny, charming YouTube yeah. videos. I don't know. I don't have no, any problem with she's her. Good. And every, I, look, I'll, 
Yeah, sure, I yeah. feel like people are falling into this authenticity trap where they're 1.5 generation or second generation. They have no real idea what they're talking about, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> and, and they're like, they're like, that doesn't have the subtle, like, uh, you know, like get the flavor, and it's like, shut up, you know, <laughs> like, you're like, come on, it's fine. I, I gotta, I spent I gotta two hours I, cooking this fucking thing, you know, Just shut up. Um, yeah, that's how I, I. I admit when I, when looking up like a Chinese recipe, I try to see if I can find something simple enough in Chinese that I can understand, yeah. and if I can't, I'll if if, if all else fails, I'll find. Uh, Something written by a white person. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there like a secret Chinese cooking website? Or There's a few like good that? ones, but the best is to just use YouTube because then even if you can't follow everything, you can see what they're doing. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. Just kind of I know. Just emulate it. I know. It is. It is like it is disappointing sometimes to think about because I actually have this thought too, where I think like, is there some website that uh, we are that people are using where it has like the actual dank recipes, <laughs> and I'm just right. googling shit and using bullshit recipes. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. From my perspective, that that site isn't on. It's not like ordering off the secret menu, you know, or something like <laughs> yeah. that, where you go yeah. to a Chinese restaurant and your uh, your your wife friends are like, "Hey, is there a secret menu here?" It's like, no, I don't think. So. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Let's order off menu. You're like, there's no off menu, dude. <laughs> it's just like, um, I think the I think the recipe game is very sim- similar, but I'm sure that this is you know I don't think anything we've said so far would inspire listener anger more than this you know i'm sure that there's Betty Mangchi haters out there but you know my response to you would be to please settle down um the 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 other thing that i think that we wanted to talk about and uh andy you know this is something that you and i before we started this podcast would chat about a lot and tammy and i as well too which is that you know we wanted to clarify a little bit about what the perspective that we wanted to bring to this podcast would be and i think that it's something because of coronavirus and because there's so much to talk about with that we haven't quite been able to elucidate in the way that we wanted to. So I don't know, Andy, like what, what did you want to get out of doing this with, uh, with B and Tammy? I think this probably comes from our shared dissatisfaction with what's out there right now by people who identify as, uh, offering some sort of Asian American voice or Asian American political vision. Um, it typically is Asian American for Asian American sake, offered by the professional class, which is to say that they don't want to think about... There's a lot of shortcomings of that type of vision, which we can discuss, but it's one that is really about political symbolism and diversity for diversity's sake, rather than thinking about material questions like inequality and, you know, how do people that are not at the... who are not just kind of climbing up the highest rungs of the ladder are trying to live. And I think... Something else uh, that we're interested in is um, not aff- not making the goal the affirmation of Amer- Asian American identity as the as as the end goal because that really it's kind of hard to tell to uh, it's it's hard to build alliances with other people if you make that the end goal. I think to the extent that any of us have anything in common, it's not because of some deep rooted Asianness or Confucianism. <laughs> it's really the happenstance of history that we have some overlapping experiences in this country and in our life, but they're certainly not identical. And perhaps, you know, who knows where this will go, but perhaps that will provide some interesting friction or tension that can lead to some um, discussions that uh, are not exclusive with the other discussions we have in our lives, but are probably different than the ones we would have with, um, with people who aren't Asian American and from our generation. 
So I would just throw that out. Yeah. I think that's a good delineation. Tammy, how about you? I think the only thing I would add to that is something of a kind of internationalist or transnational orientation that, that we all have. Like we're all looking to Asia for, you know, information and, you know, we're very interested in what's happening there. And I think like in my own quote unquote Asian American journey, I think I've gone from someone who's very interested in kind of racialization and what's happening here to Asian people to somebody who's much more interested in the sorts of solidarity networks that can be built between like left people here and in, you know, other continents and other spaces and, and also thinking about language a lot, like what can we get by, you know, communicating with people in Korean and Chinese. And, um, so yeah. And I, I think the other thing is Jay, when you and I first started talking about this, I was thinking Sanders had a very good chance of winning (laughs) and, uh, you know, I felt like a lot of stuff that people that I care about have been fighting for, for a long time was now at this point where maybe it could be realized and, and now we are here. So it's nice to be in a space (laughs) where we can kind of process that stuff. But it did seem like, uh, when there was an attempt, you know, and I think that the Sanders campaign did encapsulate a lot of this to try and build what they wanted to be a sort of multiracial coalition Mm -hmm. and an idea of having people of different backgrounds and, you know, coming together and some sort of, you know, political campaign that was beyond a political campaign was a movement that that really was anathema in many ways, you know, to the seat at the table type of politics Mm -hmm. that I think that Asian Americans are very used to pursuing. Because that seat at the table politics is much more about how do I become wealthier? You know, like how do I become whiter while still, you know, whiter economically while still maintaining some sort of veneer of of cultural authenticity? Mm -hmm. And, you know, those questions, as I think the country plunges further and further after this into income equality and into health inequality, all sorts of inequalities will become much more absurd to think about, you know, and uh we can either draw a line around those of us who are very privileged, of which I would include myself, you know, um, and those of us who grew up speaking English in households that, you know, going to elite colleges and finding ourselves in these sorts of spaces uh, where we have platforms like to try and defend what we have or we can just drop all of yeah. it, you know, and just say, like, it's better for us to, you know, acknowledge what we do have, but also to just say, like, we no longer are so covetous of of whatever that next step is for us, you know? Yeah. I don't even know what it is, you know? But it's like, I'm just like, well, whatever it is, it's not as interesting as everything else. And so we thought that there are a lot of people, I think the three of us thought when talking that there are a lot of people who feel the same mm-hmm. way that we do, right? And that um, within our communities and that we wanted to have a platform for them and a place where they could listen. Yep. Yeah, and I think to add to... Um, Tammy's point about internationalism, I think there's a generational thing. I think for the previous few decades, the general attitude for Asian Americans was about assimilation. Mm -hmm. And so all of the sort of writing and politics was kind of this hand-wringing about how do we fit into this new society that now we were indefinitely a part of. Think like the Joy Luck Club. um, (laughs) Great That kind of stuff. Right, exactly. (laughs) And uh, which was like obligatory for everyone in our generation, at least Chinese Americans to watch. Um, but now we're in an age where, like, we live in the globalist. I mean, the reason we came here was because of globalization. Mm-hmm. Our families came here. 
And now I think politics are catching up to that. And now we're actually at this moment where there's a reckoning over globalization in this country. And uh, if you kind of look and listen to mainstream political uh, debates, you really just have globalization is, uh, you have, there isn't a really good left defense of globalization, mm. right? And I kind of think that for immigrants or second generation people, that's really anathema to us. Because we do, for instance, we do sympathize with the Sanders campaign, but we don't, it's kind of hard for us to accept this idea that America should just close its borders um, to, to like trade, right. which would also yeah. by implication mean like anti-immigration. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the conversations I've had with my friends is how do you, how do you push not just Sanders personally, right? But just like the leftist discourse in this country to a more internationalist vision. All right. So uh, we, we do have some news, uh, good news, I think for all of us, which is that Andy, uh, you know, and this is something that, that he tried to slip by me and pay me here. Like we're, we do talk to Andy quite a bit. And then one day we look on Twitter and Andy's like, my book just came out. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, like you're writing a book and it just came out. But Andy, congratulations. Can you, uh, can, can you tell us the title of your book and uh, like, you know, a little bit about what it's about? Uh, so it's called Tea War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. So for, I mean, for, for those who are academics or who know academic friends, they know that these books are like 12 year long projects. So it's when it came out, it was sort of like this weird experience. It's not like I was working on it last week. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, So what it's about, it's an economic, it's an economic history. It's looking at the tea trade in China and India, which people may be aware of as sort of the flip side to the opium trade, at least the opium war in China. Uh, There's this new rise of interest in economic history in the academy or what is is known as the history of Mm -hmm. capitalism that people have been, uh, especially European and American historians, have been interested in. To me, it makes all the sense in the world to connect this with Asia, since China is now like one of the yeah. three, you know, big, big, big legs of the of the global global market. Um, so we'll see, you know, if people are receptive to it. Um, in terms of connecting, I think the themes or the ideas to stuff that we've been talking about. Um, in general, I'm trying to argue that there's a different. We can think about China and India India in the 19th century, which have typically been seen as just kind of these backwards nations. You know, Asia is seen as the antithesis to dynamic Western Europe and the United States. And I'm trying to rethink that uh, and argue against it. Uh, The other thing I'm interested in is, uh, I think it's the 19th century, where a lot of these ideas about Asia as um, kind of being held backward by all of its cultural traditions Mm -hmm. emerges, uh, especially in Western European writing. So it seems like every episode, this will probably be a continuing thing. We talk about how um, everyone explains the East Asia through Confucianism. Yeah. Right. And But I think that's actually a 19th century mm. thing where famously like Max Weber, this German sociologist, has this theory that, uh, you know, China, Chinese society can be explained through Confucianism. But what, they're, what he's really trying to figure out is why is Asia not capitalist mm. and why is Western Europe capitalist? So I think actually underlying a lot of this stuff we talk about like orientalism, cultural essentialism and stereotypes is this very old question of the 19th century, which is why are some parts of the world capitalist and other parts not capitalist? Why are some parts of the world rich? Why are other parts of the world mm-hmm. poor? And people just kind of coming up with whatever explanations are possible to, to explain that. Um, and culture in my, I've come to, I've come a long way. I think when I was undergrad, I was really interested in culture and now I think a lot of times culture is just this very um, easy explanation for people when they really don't understand like 
political economy or or history, right? Like culture is kind of the opposite of history. Mm. It's like things don't change; they're just rooted in um, some something that an old man said thousands of years ago. <laughs> before uh, before like Weber, before the nineteenth century, like when this attitude began to calcify in Western Europe and some of the writing about China, like was there a different was there a different attitude about China before that? Yeah, for sure. So if you look at um, 1700 stuff, it's really interesting. Even the famous ones are like Leibniz and Voltaire. They actually, they praised China. They looked up to China. The French, uh, the school called the Physiocrats, they, they admired the Chinese agrarian society um, as like the model that France should follow. If you, even if you read Adam Smith, right, who's sort of the, sort of the founder of this Western, modern Western uh, view of economics, he... You know, he was he was Eurocentric, I guess, but he was also quite, um, quite positive in his evaluation of China and India. And if anything, Smith has been kind of turned into this uh, like thinker of the right wing, like free markets and all that. But he was deep down a liberal and a universalist, and he kind of believed that all societies had this capacity to, uh, you know, the wealth of nations, like mm-hmm. get rich. Um, so it's the, in the 18th century, most of the world looked looked up to Asia. Um, in the 19th century is when things kind of go crazy. And then inside of the 19th century that we have, and early 20th century, that we have all these ideas that are, you know, still burdening Asia and the post-colonial world and, um, you know, probably basically the entire world outside of Western (laughs) Europe. Why do you think, you said (laughs) earlier that there's more of an interest in kind of like questions of, you know, economic history, history of capitalism. And I've been following this blog out of Yale Law School, the Law and Political Economy blog, which is really great. And I've seen a lot more like interest in political economy. Can you explain like why you think that stuff is trending now? Yeah, that's a good question. There was an article in the New York Times six or seven years ago, um, which obviously kind of annoyed all of us that are in the academy, but it kind of made it like mainstream. It's kind of like cherry picking the four <laughs> or five scholars who are representing uh, this this trend, right? Um, and I think it's primarily American historians. The explanation, which is probably superficial, is that you know the 2008 financial crisis mm-hmm. led people to think about capitalism differently. In the 90s, we had the end of history, right? The end of the Cold War. People thought capitalism is here to stay mm-hmm. forever. Now that we keep having these economic crises every 10 years, people are more willing to think of it as a historical um, byproduct, a pro- historical um, process rather than this you know, state of nature. But I think even before, you know, the books that are coming out in the early 2010s are not being right, written after yeah. 2008. Like people have been working on this for a while. I just think in general... Uh, this is simplistic. The '90s were a pretty good time for all of us, and like, like, you know, again, like the end of the Cold War, America's booming, the Clinton years, and I think as as we have, we're become more aware of like inequality and the and globalization, people kind of naturally became more aware mm-hmm. of that, interested in that, and in the academy, there was this long fixation probably from the 70s onwards and through my undergrad education in the 2000s where everything was all about culture, culture, culture. Yeah. And if you talked about the economy, you'd be accused of deter- determinism. Um, and uh, that's that's still around today, but I think that that's kind of changing. I think the uh, I've been kind of surprised and encouraged that uh, the people who are grad students today are pretty openly interested in, in questions of political economy, whereas when I was doing this 10 years ago, I, th- I feel like very, there were very few of us. Most people were just interested in Foucault. Yeah. 
you know the french like the foucault derrida all those people yeah yeah that's interesting yeah that stuff has become uh i don't know it, it i think about it almost every day and you and i both did high school debate and you did college debate as well so foucault and Agamben are kind of mainstays, you know. I I read I read that in high school, not to brag. It's just that you had to read it to compete. Damn guys, um, it, it is it is interesting how those ideas have and Agamben getting just like dunked on by the entire world have <laughs> has has kind of shifted things. Uh, do you do you see that type of do you see a shift in the analysis of how you know not to swing it back to coronavirus, but how this thing this this gigantic event has been has been analyzed from how you would have expected 10 years ago? Because I, I do think that, look, the cultural explanation exists. You know, we see it every single day when people are trying to explain mm-hmm. Asia. But then I also think that it kind of doesn't really exist, like, uh, in some ways that is is refreshing, at least to me. What do you think? Um, it's hard to give a overall picture, but I think there's a generational thing. I think people, certain people were raised <clears throat> in the 90s and 2000s to think of the world through like the lens of Foucault and uh, just like I'm probably in 20 years going to be outdated also because I'm using my the, the stuff I read when I was yeah. younger and what, what uh, was that like what, what sorts of stuff is that uh, I've at some point I took a class on Marx and that kind of just changed everything for me oh. um, <laughs> and it's not mutually exclusive with any of this other stuff it, it, like in my opinion like Foucault is a good Marxist but most people who talk about Foucault um Hopefully this isn't going over everyone's head. Most people who talk about Foucault don't think of him as a Marxist. They think of him as discourse analysis, whatever that is yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. America. Um, so, yeah, in my mind, like the uh, Marx, Marx kind of put together a lot of things mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I mean, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the mission of this, not the mission, <laughs> some of the thoughts we had about this podcast was, I think what Marx really drove home for me was, no matter where you are in the world, where your parents are from or what language you speak or what you look like, in the 21st century, um, you understand capitalism because you experience capitalism. So if you under, if you are talking about questions of class, um, inequality, um, the accumulation of capital, then that allows you to talk to people from all around the world. It's actually the most internationalist body of literature, I think, that exists in the world is, is, is Marxist yeah. literature. Like... Uh, new Left Review, um, uh, for instance, is, a, is just interested in all the countries in the world, um, obviously from the question of political economy, but it's really, uh, you don't have these barriers where people say you have to like, you have to learn about these, you know, you have to learn the language first and you have to learn about all these traditions. And in order to understand this place, you can just understand what do people in the 21st century living in this part of the world care about is probably mm-hmm. money. And where they fit into the global marketplace, um, and so I think so. For me, that was a really refreshing thing to do to, to turn away from um, this sort of you got to study thousands of years of like religious discourses <laughs> to understand this place, right? Which is we we would never we would never hold Americans up to the same standard, right? Of like studying the Greeks and the mm-hmm. Romans to understand European Americans. Right. That's true. Uh... Oh, one last question about your book, like, you know, and it's a little bit more specific, but, you know, like, what was the what was the attitude within 19th century China towards capitalism, um, you know, like towards Western Europe? Mm-hmm. Let me see how I can answer this without you can edit this out. Um, you can be more. 
This is like the uh, in our time. <laughs> I love this podcast version of it yeah what's in our time i don't know what that it's is it's like the most it's like the most fun it's like this old british man he's amazing and he talks <sighs> to british academics about like you know yeah the gin craze or about like edith wharton and he, he's yeah. always like <laughs> his questions are always but very i think i good. emailed you guys so, a like, link yeah. to his episode about like the founding father of chinese medicine yeah yeah shit, that shit but, is yeah, amazing and also like sun <laughs> sun zoo yeah it's like, so what was what was he thinking yeah. back then? So like, yeah. Yeah. It's so great. It's like douche tactics. Uh, so yeah, like what what was what was the edit? Like, let's let's try it. Like so what what's within nineteen? I'll, I'll try and do my best, uh, Melvin Bragg. There's like within nineteenth century China, right? Like uh, like was there was there an awareness of 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 the concept of capitalism and the way in which you know like their society was was structured differently? Like was was there a competitive sense or was there even like a defining by by saying we are not that yeah so typically the word capitalism doesn't enter most of the world except until more communism happens the october yeah. revolution in russia in 1917 but i i argue that even if they didn't have the word capitalism they had some awareness of these basic principles in the 19th century and I'm, so i'm just i'm trying to like in order to to show that though you have to get at what actually capitalism is and not just kind of take people's word for it so uh, and this, what's interesting in the 19th century is uh, for a lot of people in Asia, what made the West the West was their guns or their machines, like the, the most spectacular evidence of industrialization. But there are a few people who were reading political economy, um, sort of like Adam Smith and the British economists. And they were understanding like, actually, yeah, life is governed by um, how productive human labor is and value is about supply and demand and these basic things that we wouldn't that are kind of common sense to us today in economics textbooks it's really interesting seeing that these chinese thinkers um, and in india also kind of come to terms with these ideas that are typically associated as Euro, european ideas but they they're reading them and they're thinking they're thinking this yeah. applies to our society wow. as well which to me again is kind of goes back to this point of capitalism is like the most universal thing uh, at least in the last 200 years. Like before that, we could talk about clashes of civilizations and how everyone has different ideas and different cosmologies. But if we want to understand the modern world, I think it's pretty clear early on for the last 200 years, capitalism makes sense to most people mm -hmm. in the world because capitalism has begun to uh, um, kind of organize people's lives. So how do, these, uh, how do these ideas get from, you know, a few scholars in China reading you know, Adam Smith or, or studying the economies of Western Europe to making it into, you know, the actual government and politics and economy of China? Yeah, I would say they were confused for a long time and people didn't know what to do. People um, constantly tried to say, like, it was just about the machines. So if you just import some of these machines from England, <laughs> then we'll suddenly, you know. And so this happens all across Asia and the rest of the colonial world, you have these revolutions, like in Japan, famously, you have the Meiji uh, Restoration. In China, you have the, the overthrow of the Qing and ultimately the Communist Revolution of the 1940s. Korea is different, but eventually, uh, I, I would say through J Japanese imperialism and colonialism, society gets remade. Uh, all these places go through these violent transformations in the 20th century precisely because they're seen as, they see themselves as too poor and too backward to keep up with. Western Europe and the Western Europeans are doing something right. So we have mm. to, um, and, and I think that just, that's generated out of the, the tensions of 
suddenly being connected to this thing called global, the global market, the global division of labor. Um, so even if it's even if it's just, you know, for as 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 someone writing about this, it's easy for me to talk about the one or two books where someone who actually could read Adam Smith and interpret it. That's interesting for me to write about. But I think it was actually quite intuitive for a lot of people. Like, oh, to compete on the world market, we actually have to change everything we're doing. Mm. And that's how you get popular support for revolutions. Uh, ultimately, people are saying the current system isn't working. You know, let's overthrow the emperor or whatever. Andy, what does T-War mean in your title? So the T-War refers to the twentieth, the late 19th, early 20th century. China and, and India were the two big tea exporting countries in the world. Um, so at some point, both in India and in China, participants in this in this global trade started to use war metaphors to describe it. So I thought that was like a nice way to encapsulate what was going on. So part of my broader argument is we can't understand what's happening in Chinese history in the 1920th century without also understanding what's happening in India at the same time, right? So it's an argument for thinking beyond nations uh, exclusively. So half the book is about China, half the book is about India. It goes back and forth. Um, and so I, I kind of ran around parts of China, ran around parts of India. Um, and uh, it was really, it was a, it was a privilege, awesome. obviously, to be able to do this. But it was also really, it was also really illuminating to talk to locals in different parts of the world. And uh, to, it was interesting to hear what India academics thought about Chinese history. And then to talk to Chinese historians and to think about what they, ask them what they thought about what's going on in India. And um, kind of putting the two together was, um, you know, it was a real... It was a real pleasure to do, um, but then the pain <laughs> is the writing and the publication and everything else. <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, all that sucks. Well, today we're really excited to bring on Wilfred Chen, who's a freelance writer in New York City. Go New York! Yay. And an activist and organizer as well. And um, we're really excited to talk to him about Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, the Lower East Side, and other wonderful things. Uh, welcome, Wilfred. Thanks. Wilfred, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Where'd you grow up? What are you doing now? I was born in Hong Kong, uh, grew up in Seattle, and went to school, uh, went to college in New York. After I graduated, moved straight to Hong Kong, and I was working as a journalist there uh, for three or four years. And then uh, after Trump got elected, I was like, I need to get back to the U.S. and... <clears throat> Um, the shit's going down. <laughs> Brave man. <laughs> and um, I've been back since uh, the end of 2017. Um, mm. So right now I'm a freelance writer. Um, I'm a part-time delivery cyclist in New York City. And um, I do um, some organizing on the side as well. So you were in Hong Kong during the Umbrella Movement. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Umbrella Movement was and what your involvement was? Was it just as a journalist or were you also engaged with the protests? Um, so I was a journalist at CNN International. Um, didn't really intend on doing that. It was more just a vehicle for me to <laughs> live in Hong Kong without, you know, uh, having to be an English teacher or kind of a tutor or something. Um, and uh, ended up just being, uh, you know, kind of the right moment because the year that I got there um, was the year that the Umbrella Movement really kicked off. And, you know, it was this total transformation where you had this city where everyone kind of assumed that 
young people were apathetic, that people were just hyper-capitalist, that no one was thinking about politics in a serious way, um, suddenly, uh, you know, became this massive street occupation that lasted for 79 days. Um, and, you know, the demands were to try to ask for universal suffrage. That's what Hong Kong people have really wanted. And mm -hmm. this was kind of the last-ditch effort. So it didn't work. It was cleared by police in the end. None of the demands were met. And uh, after that, there was kind of a long political depression in Hong Kong where people were like, wow, uh, you know, we just did this massive protest and nothing came out of yeah. it. So guess nothing works, right? And um, uh -huh. little did we know that it would happen again in an even bigger way in 2019. Um, and, you know, that's uh, kind of still going on. What happened in 2019? Do you want to explain to the readers and how that connected to Umbrella, if at all? Yeah, I mean, 2019 was the culmination of a lot of bottled up anger after the failure of the Umbrella movement. Uh, you had uh, people who were, um, you know, the Umbrella movement kind of split into two camps. You had the more confrontational folks and the more kind of peaceful folks. And there was this, you know, blame game afterward of, which tactic was right and wrong. And in the end, they kind of made a truce. And then in 2019, uh, the kind of spark that lit everything back on fire was uh, this extradition bill where um, basically the people of Hong Kong would have been exposed to China's very opaque and dangerous legal system. And people in Hong Kong saw this as a violation of the separation between Hong Kong and China. And so mm -hmm. it was sort of like a oh shit moment, you know, it wasn't even just fighting for democracy anymore, but just fighting for the very meaning of this place called Hong Kong. And uh, because, you know, those two camps kind of managed to make a truce, they were able to mobilize in the biggest protest that's ever been seen in probably, you know, the last uh, two or three decades of, of Chinese history. Um, and uh, so I, I was there in August, last August. Um, and I participated this time as a protester, but also as a writer who was trying wow. to make sense of it. And um, it was really, um, you know, um, it was kind of a feeling of everything kind of coming to an end, you know, like is very desperate. Mm. And then you came back here. Oh my well, God. Wilfred, yeah. do you mind if I ask? <laughs> so you said that before the f umbrella movement, everyone kind of assumed Hong Kongers are apathetic. It's all pro-capitalism over there. W mm -hmm. Were you, when you went back to Hong Kong, I guess the question is, one question is, why did you go back to Hong Kong? Um, wh had, how long had it been since you went back? And were you politically minded when you went back? And did you, did, and like, did Umbrella politicize you? And how did it politicize you? So um, <laughs> Andy was actually my TA at Columbia. <gasps> freshman year uh, <laughs> Chinese truth. history. Um, and uh, I was just starting to learn about China back then. And, um, you know, I would spend the next three years in college trying to make sense of uh, this place, right? And kind of having a very surface level understanding, seeing the problems that were that are kind of typically pointed out in the West, but not having a grasp of the history and the subtleties and um, and so I think going to Hong Kong, which is where I was born, 
was for me a starting point to just really try to understand it from the source. And, you know, the thing that really politicized me, I mean, um, I was fairly political in the US, right? Like I was tuned to intellectual politics. I like thought Occupy Wall Street was, you know, really, um, yeah, I remember hanging out at Zuccotti Park and just being like, wow, you know, <laughs> shit's real. And um, But it, it, it didn't really feel um, truly, uh, you, you know, I never think, let me put it this way. Um, uh, I, I never seen a real political mobilization until I um, went to Hong Kong. And the first thing that I remember was the June 4th vigil, where every single year, um, hundreds of thousands of people gather in the biggest park in Hong Kong, and they commemorate, you know, the victims of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And it's the only place where you can do that anywhere in kind of greater China. Um, mm. And uh, that was shocking to me, because um, having gone to school in the West, I kind of did internalize this fake idea of Asians as kind of being politically apathetic or kind of, you know, not interested in democracy or whatever. And I was just totally proven wrong. Uh, sorry, wow. I had a question in a second. So at the time, did you think of Hong Kong as part of China? It sounds like you're talking like you thought of Hong Kong as part of China. But obviously now you probably don't think that. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it yeah. is and it isn't, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a pro. Uh, well, let's. Put, <laughs> I, I think I'm more interested in the question of whether Hong Kong is part of China than having, than than interested in having a stance. Um, you know, I think that the question itself points to a lot of uh, uh, tendencies in the world order that we live in, right? Like the fact that it's even a confusing question is actually. Uh, the answer. So, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, that's very, uh, it's very, yeah, for, it's very, it's so deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very fortunate. But, right? Yeah. Um, no, uh, I, I was, uh, I knew that I, if I wanted to understand China, I had to start from Hong Kong because that's where, um, where I started and it's where my family lived. And, you know, they, um, moved to the U.S. after, uh, kind of in the wake of Tiananmen Square, right? So um, shortly mm -hmm. after I was born, um, my dad kind of saw the writing on the wall. And, you know, he's a researcher. He kind of uh, does some work that could be considered sensitive. And he was like, we got to get out of here. So, you know, in yeah. trying to understand my own Asian American kind of experience, like, I knew I had to go back to figure out what was that inflection point where, you know, my family had to make that choice and kind of, you know, altered my trajectory forever. Yeah, the stuff you've been writing is really great. You recently wrote a piece in The Nation on Taiwan and the WHO, and you've written about um, your experience in Hong Kong as an activist, and, you know, kind of learning from the movement in 2019. And um, could you say a little bit about why you've chosen to devote so much time to writing? You're also part of a collective, um, a transnational collective based in Hong Kong and the U.S. and other places called Laosan. So why, you know, devote so much time to messaging these ideas in English? Right. Um, so... You know, when I was a journalist at CNN, I was really frustrated by how shallow the coverage was. And even if you are someone who's there and kind of passionate and wants to take it a step further, you face all these limitations. 
and like what? you know um you so you you have to speak to the median American, right? Like you're always imagining some guy in Iowa as your <laughs> the, as the person who needs to understand what the hell you're writing, and that means that in every article about Hong Kong, you have to write a good two or three paragraphs at the beginning that's just saying Hong Kong is a special administrative region of China. It was colonized by the British for 150 years, and then you know there's a system called the one country two systems and a special administrative. You know, like it just that's that's the you know you can't before your lead you or i mean you, you have your lead and then you have to write those two graphs and then by that time 50 percent of those iowans you know that's optimistic like are, are already somewhere else they've clicked <laughs> over to a different tab and um if you're going to want to tell a more complex story you can't really do it in mainstream media that's um how i feel and so you know with the work in laosan um Part of what we're doing is writing about Hong Kong, but analyzing it from an anti-capitalist perspective. So we're trying to point out that a lot of the problems in Hong Kong, it's not just a question of uh, freedom versus authoritarianism, democracy versus autocracy, but really it's about these underpinnings of global capitalism that make Hong Kong into such a weird place. And what, what are the consequences that that has on ordinary people? So if you want to talk about that in a real way, if you want to actually not beat around the bush um, and kind of have a critique, then you got to kind of do it in um, independent media. Do you feel like when you're in Hong Kong and you're hanging out with working people and activists, they see you as somebody who can, you know, have solidarity with them? Because you're also like us, an Asian American who's enjoyed lots of privileges here mm -hmm. and, you know, come up through elite education, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, what is that like negotiating that and still trying to, you know, connect what's going on yeah. um, among working people in the world? You know, um, citizenship is a sore spot for Hong Kong people. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, we all know that citizenship is kind of an arbitrary thing, but I think Hong Kongers in particular, the last couple of decades, um, the people who could used every means they could to go and get a Canadian passport, a U.S. passport, an Australian passport, because they wanted to have an insurance policy <clears throat> for if shit really went down. And um, <laughs> so I'm lucky because I have multiple passports, right? And that itself um, means that I have a different experience of Hong Kong yeah. because I can leave whenever I want. And a lot of my friends there, you know, they might even speak perfect English. They write beautifully, and but they're stuck. And so mm -hmm. they kind of have to go down with the ship. And there are some moments where maybe I want to make a more kind of theoretical or, you know, um, kind of academic critique. And I get accused of being um, what they what, what they call late day in Cantonese, which means you're away from the ground. You're literally just like uh -huh. in your head is in the clouds and you're not um, kind of uh, you're not with the people. Right. Like you're, you're trying to talk about all this high sounding stuff, but they're just dealing with, you know, how do I survive the next 30 odd years before our time runs out, you know? Um, and uh, I try to keep that in mind, you know, um, because uh, if it's not for them, then who is it for, right? I wanted to ask you about one of these articles that you wrote, um, which I found to be pretty fascinating. It is about like Taiwan, the WHO, and the way in which uh, certain countries seem to get a whole lot of credit for 
uh, their coronavirus response and some don't. So like, you know, like this also includes Vietnam. I read an article in the in the retweeted nation, my, I think, today, right, about yeah. uh, how Vietnam has had this great... <laughs> I saw the headline. Yeah, I read, <laughs> Andy's, <laughs> ret- I read Andy's retweet. <laughs> I, um, so, so tell us a little bit about what happened there. Like, why, like, what, what, like what happened? What was the... Ta- First question would just be, like, what was the Taiwanese response? Uh, Taiwan really had the earliest response out of any country, and I would say that includes China in some ways. Um, on December 31st, mm-hmm. Taiwan... Uh, you know, which was the day that the Wuhan health authorities actually came out and actually acknowledged the existence of this, what they were calling a new a pneumonia. Um, Taiwan actually started screening people on flights from Wuhan on that day. Um, they, Without knowing a single thing, they were just like, we've seen this before and we wow. know how this is going to turn out and we're going to start acting right now. And, you know, it wasn't until January 20th that China actually kind of started taking official measures, right? So um, meanwhile, Taiwan was trying to get in touch with the WHO, where it's not a member, um, and uh, trying to say, hey, you know, this is this looks kind of bad. So what's the deal? You know, is there human to human transmission? What's going on? And the WHO kind of ghosted Taiwan, um, because uh, they don't want to upset China. And um, that 20 days is kind of the time it took um, for uh, the WHO and the rest of the world to get onto the same page as Taiwan. So, you know, I wrote an article kind of giving the blow by blow, right, and just showing how absurd it is that because of this uh, geopolitical kind of, um, you know, um, uh, quirk where um, no one was willing to openly admit that Taiwan is a nation state, that we would just sit on, um, that we would just not take action on something as consequential as this. And I was pretty angry. Um, and I wrote about um, not just the fact that I think, you know, Taiwan deserves more credit, but really what is up with this system where, you know, this arbitrary mm-hmm. thing called nation states gets to decide, you know, who we listen to. It's kind of stupid. Yeah, I, it was it was part of the it was part of the quick Taiwanese response. Like, what was that? How did they know? Like, how you know? Because I you you hear even like Fauci, who's now the American hero. Um, he did he did give out a statement about like what what about the WHO that was actually in China, which was actually quite critical. In which he said, "Look, we were just doing what they told us. You know, like this is what they said. They said there's no human to human transmission, and we listened to them because we." We trusted that what they were saying was true. Like, uh, like what was it about? You know, what was it? What's the history back that that dictates that? You know, Taiwan hears that and says, "Yeah, I don't like. I don't <laughs> yeah. believe you." Right. Um, and how, how do they have that response? Uh, so it's a long history, right? Um, because <laughs> if you think of what place is more familiar with uh, basically the deceit of the Chinese Communist Party, that would be Taiwan. Uh, they've been dealing with it since the end of the Chinese Civil War, 1949. And, um, you know, and not to say that the Taiwanese government has been great, like there, it's had a lot of dark moments, um, but they are more familiar with uh, questioning everything that comes from the CCP um, than any other place in the world. So, um, you know, in 2003, the Chinese government really dropped the ball on SARS and you know, even Beijing will admit this. They they acknowledge that they fucked it up. Um, they 
kind of tried to cover up the outbreak for many months. And they, um, even as the <clears throat> virus was spreading into uh, like uh, many different countries, um, including Taiwan, uh, they impeded the efforts of the WHO to take action. Um, and dozens of people died in Taiwan. Uh, I think actually, well, I, yeah, I, I need to get the exact number, but a lot of people died in Taiwan. And um, Taiwan people were really angry. And, you know, you can kind of see the same thing happen in Hong Kong, where, um, mm. you know, hundreds of people died in Hong Kong, um, and uh, they were kind of lied to, right? So when this happened, uh, Hong Kong people also kind of took action on their own the second that they got wind of this. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad that it kind of takes these traumatic histories to know how to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah, when I was talking to Max, uh, who was the or the guy who we were talking to about Korean testing, he also said that was also integral to the Korean response as well, which was that they also didn't believe what the China, what the CCP was telling That's them. That's good for right? your health, <laughs> not to believe in the Chinese so, Communist Party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. It seems like all the, they're like, it's not, maybe we could just change our slogan to it. It's not Confucianism. It's just not believing exactly. China. Like, that's the most important thing. Or the WHO, um, apparently. Yeah. yeah we, we could be in the next Joe Biden ad or something like that. We could be like, listen, even, even we think that you shouldn't listen to China. And, oh, no. and yeah, you, I, was, uh, I was kind of thinking a, a connection between what's going on, what you see right now in these debates about, you know, the responsibility that China has, this back and forth. And and how that's connected to your politics, your political um, mission with Laosan and, and Hong Kong reporting, it feels like you're always constantly faced with this false choice, right? Between either defending China or defending defending the U.S. and you like you don't want to defend either, right? And that's actually kind of the right. mission statement of your group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I find myself kind of constantly falling into this trap of uh, because I'm just so mad at the characterizations of Asia that I almost kind of slide into defending the mm -hmm. Chinese government um, when I don't, obviously, I have no right. personal reason to do that. Um, is there, yeah, how, I mean, I guess it's mm -hmm. an open-ended question. Like, how do you, what's your philosophy on that? Do you, do, do yeah. you face this a lot in your writing and, and thinking? Totally. Um, you know, we're not only not defending those two countries, we're trying to critique both of those two countries. <laughs> but people only want us to be allowed to do one, right? And um, it's hard because uh, we live in an increasingly kind of new Cold War dynamic. So kind yeah. of feels like if you're not uh, for one, then you must be for the other somehow. But it's really a false choice, right? A lot of this new Cold War stuff is very manufactured. And it's kind of, uh, you know, what do I have to do with the whims of these sort of foreign policy elites and the capitalists who are kind of like driving their desires, right? Like. I don't care mm -hmm. about this. Like, if the U.S. and China really go to war, people I love are going to die one way or the other. You know, whether that's people in Hong Kong or my relatives in China or, you know, my friends here, right? So I'm not interested in this uh, idea of conflict somehow solving any kind of problem. Um, in our work, I think that it's hard because we have to find the similarities between the two places and keep pointing to them. Everyone wants to always cast one as a kind of like, you know, uh, uh, 
a mirror that can kind of like represent the inverse of the other, you know, whether it's kind of Orientalism or kind of like a, you know, fetishization of Western stuff, you know, you're always kind of falling into a trap, but we have to resist both. And um, people don't always believe us when we're doing it, but we have to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, there. it seems like there's a there's a sort of interesting distinction that I think I hope that Asian Americans right will make it through this process, which is that I feel that Andy is correct in which there is sometimes this impulse when you hear things that are just stupid or racist where you want to argue against mm-hmm. them, you know, and in arguing against them, you're defending <laughs> something that you don't want to defend. <laughs> right. And that uh, that if you had to choose between the two, you would rather just tell the racist that he's right. an idiot, you know, <laughs> but even if like the <laughs> or yes, or she <laughs> that, that he or she is a <laughs> is a. <laughs> Yeah, um, that that they're that they're racist, but then you know you end up only sort of hammering that one nail over and over and over again, and then you end up uh, sort of forgetting about all the other things that make the question interesting. And I think that mm-hmm. actually is sort of the toxic part about um, the way that we're talking about Asian Americanness mm-hmm. now, which is just like we need to fight against every racist t-shirt that's put out that about China. We have to, if somebody says something about eating bats or wet markets, we have to fight totally. against that. And then by at the end, we just de facto become apologists for the, for the CCP, you know, and, and Tam, from Tammy and I are like Korean, you know, like we end up becoming, uh, we become cheerleaders for like the Korean neoliberal chebel right. system, which is fucking right. terrible. Speak you for know? yourself, like, Jay. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Those cell phones were incredible, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, like, do you know how much internet they have in Korea? Like, like you have to, you start, you start cheerleading for that yeah. sort of stuff. I don't know. I don't know how to resist. Like, do you guys have any ideas on how to delineate that? Because in my head, I don't, because like, I always feel like such an idiot. Because I'm just like, first of all, why am I talking to this person? And secondly, you know, like, like, why am I defending this thing that I don't want to defend? Yeah, it's. It's not easy. I mean, even with the Taiwan, like, I love Taiwan, honestly. It's a great place. The food is, like, top-notch, and uh, everything is beautiful. But um, I got a message from, like, a Taiwanese person after my piece, and uh, they were kind of like, you know, kind of seems like you were really pro the Taiwan government. And I was like, I mean, that's not really the main point, right? Like, I'm trying to make a broader critique of like this world system blah blah and they're like yeah i get that but why did you have to kind of say so many good things about the taiwanese government (laughs) and you know like that's something that you would get from like an actual person who lives there like i you know am not korean but when i go to korea i also have a great time because i love korean food i love kind of everything about it but then my korean friends always have to remind me that they fucking hate it and you know (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, it's like Helchosan or whatever, right? Like this, right. <laughs> just this idea that like, and actually Taiwanese people have a similar nickname for Taiwan. Like, it's uh, weird how mm-hmm. so many Asian places actually consider their own country to be hell. Um, <laughs> even countries that we kind of <laughs> fetishize uh, often in the West. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, when we're, when we as Asian Americans are trying to make sense of the world and talk about ourselves in complex ways, like, we have to also not kind of talk over people in Asia, right? Because um, they have a very different idea of what this place means. And uh, Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't really know how to <laughs> do all of that at the same time sometimes. It's, it's really hard, but uh, yeah, I feel you. Tammy, how do you deal with it? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you write about Korea and Korea's response, for example, you know, and look, this will not be the only story forever, right? And you will write more about Korea in the future. How do you write like something like, well, Korea's mask response is pretty awesome without also feeling like you're rubber stamping, yeah. you know, uh, like the, 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 the political system in Korea? Well, I've been covering the Koreas, especially South Korea, a lot since like, the beginning of the Trump presidency, just because, for obvious reasons, he's been obsessed with Kim Jong-un, um, who who knows where he is right now. Um, anyway, but, um, you know, I guess I've definitely noticed that depending on the week, my Twitter or whatever is full of Moon Jae-in, you know, the Korean president's supporters saying, oh, you're such a sellout, like, Yankee bitch. Or really? yeah, or saying, <laughs> or the Moon supporters being like retweeting it and being like, "Yay!" <laughs> like an American reporter finally gets it. So I've sort of <laughs> given up on you know needing some sort of affirmation from you know particular readers. I think like my goal is like to do as much thinking and reporting as I can, and to just be honest. You know, during the coronavirus. <laughs> There was a period in one week where I wrote one article about a Korean doctor who handled the response in Daegu, which is yeah. the conservative stronghold of South Korea. And that was the week when I published that article that all the Moon supporters were like, you're a sellout conservative wow. rightist. And then the next week I was like, oh, the mask response was like really great. <laughs> and then like the Blue House was like very happy, right. you know. So it just, <laughs> I guess I've given up. And I mm. think like honesty and sticking to like what I know how to do is the most important thing. Okay, Andy, what about you? Because I think you probably had the most fraught relationship in all of this, right? Because, um, you know, like, I think if uh, just because of the way in which you cover China, the way you write about China and your position in the academy, it might be the one that's most prone to somebody being like, oh, are you a CCP <laughs> right, yeah. spy or are you a propagandist? How do you do with that? Uh, within academia, I think the Chinese studies as a field, and Wilfred got a taste of this in, in, uh, when he took our classes, um, it, was, it was a field built out of the Cold War. It was to study the enemy. So, and I think down to today, uh, the whole vibe mm -hmm. is like, obviously we hate the Chinese Communist Party and they do nothing good and we wish we didn't lose. Uh, we, we wish like <laughs> the KMT did not lose China, or we didn't lose China. Yeah. Um, and I almost feel, again, like sort of right. sliding into like being really defensive and being like, uh, you know, some of my relatives are in, in China. It's like, it's not all bad. Uh, uh, right. And then now that I've written a couple, just a handful of pieces for the public, it's, I, w I was really shocked at the backlash at how, what I thought was making a rel relatively mm. mild point generated all sorts of... Uh, <laughs> people uh, telling me I didn't understand Chinese history and I, like kind of lecturing to me about, uh, which is, I mean, I thought I didn't take it personally. I thought it was kind of fun, uh, but uh, it was, it was. I guess being in the academy, I wasn't quite aware of what Wilford was talking about, this new Cold War dynamic. I mean, you know, you see the headlines, but I, I, mm -hmm. it didn't become viscerally um, clear to me until I started getting like 20 emails a, a day for about how I was an apologist for uh, Xi Jinping. Well, I mean, bridging this, I think, well, for one thing, <laughs> mm. I think people might be surprised when they know that you are interested in Hong Kong politics is uh, you and I had a conversation last fall when when I was writing one of these pieces where I was, I kind of want to flip this idea past you because you know Hong Kong far better than I do. 
um, where I was kind of turning this over in my head and I was reading your article in Descent, uh, which came out last October, and thinking like, basically Hong Kong politics doesn't really have a way forward unless as an, as an isolationist tendency, right, as an independence movement, that it, that it is part and parcel of some idea of China, and it might actually be useful to think about mm-hmm. the possibility, however, you know, pro- however unlikely it seems right now, of some sort of cross-border political, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 sympathy, let's say. And yeah, I think people... Yeah, and solidarity. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think most people in Hong Kong think that way, and uh, I wonder. I wonder how you got to that position Uh, of thinking about China and Hong Kong not as enemies, but as Mm. potential, uh, you know, people in sympathy with each other. Yeah, nationalism is the oldest trick in the book, just to split people apart. And um, you know, when you look at how people in China were, or you know, when you look at Tiananmen Square, 1989, people in Beijing uh, were supporting the protests, right? Uh, People in Hong Kong were sending aid. There was a sense of this is a moment that concerns all of us. And um, the reaction in China to the 2019 protests was way different. People were uh, really hostile to the idea that Hong Kongers could want democracy, which is really the same thing that a lot of the Tiananmen protesters were asking for, right? And I mm. think that that reflects the successful strategy of the CCP to really ramp up this national identity and get people to buy into that imagined community um, in order to not look at the material conditions. And when you do, you realize that we're under the same type of capitalist exploitation. We got oligarchs running the show on both sides. You know, we got these massive capital movements that have nothing to do with working people, but kind of rely on their labor. And that's not a good deal. And, you know, the source is the same. So we should be working together, right? The um, alliance is waiting to happen. But I think because uh, you have this fraught history, a lot of Hong Kong people feel that it's really politically important to insist on a Hong Kong identity, right? This Hong Kong burgeoning nationalist movement. And um, that is what really gets in the way of what I think could be a really powerful kind of cross-border alliance. Um, but, you know, for, if, when I say that to Hong Kong people, they think I'm <laughs> fucking crazy. And, or they think I'm like <laughs> yeah. a CCP supporter, you know, which... <laughs> right. So, Yeah. Yeah, is that, I mean, so it's not that as, it, it sort of in some ways reminds me of like a C.L.R. James type of argument about people spontaneously waking up and understanding that, you know, we don't have any actual divisions and our enemy is, is you know, that guy who's running the yeah. factory. Like, is that, is that like a, is, is like, I mean, you, you just said everyone thinks you're crazy, but are you the only one <laughs> shouting about this right now? Not the only ones, but it's not a lot of people. And uh, they actually have a term um, that's not a very nice term <laughs> for people like me. Um, yeah. I, I can't even say <laughs> it. It term? just sounds, yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 it's along the lines of just like, yeah, 
just someone who likes China mm. too much, and you're kind of yeah. Um, so um, and, and the implication is that you're putting this abstract notion of Chineseness above just concern for your fellow Hong Konger who's like getting beat up by police or something. You're kind of a traitor to yeah. um, this made-up idea, and you know. So I want to be clear that like I'm not saying that I'm trying to. Uh, rally and say we're all Chinese and we need to reclaim Chineseness in this way necessarily. Like I think mm-hmm. that Chineseness also is kind of a made-up idea, right? But like it's weaponized um, by the CCP to accomplish all sorts of political aims. And the mm-hmm. response can't be to then make another imaginary thing called Hong Kongness and say like this is our thing now. And you're not this thing, and we're this thing, and we're not friends. And you know, I don't know what that's going to solve. We have to break down these imaginary ideas. I mean, there was there was reports that in Hong Kong, people are referring to um, people in China. What is the word like locusts or basically like you know dehumanizing Mm. terms? Is that yeah? Was that new in 2019 versus 2014? No, no, Um, locusts. So. Basically, there was an infamous ad in Apple Daily, which is kind of the New York Post of Hong Kong. And uh, it was a full page ad that had a picture of a giant locust kind of like towering over the Hong Kong skyline. And it was just basically um, saying that we need uh, more immigration controls against, you know, these invaders from north of the border. And, uh, you know, it reflected a lot of... um, you know, frustration from Hong Kong people over uh, a lot of like shoppers who come into Hong Kong from the mainland or people who come just to like buy baby formula because they don't trust the baby formula that's in the mainland and, you know, taking up hospital beds so like Hong Kongers can't, you know, uh, get the care they need and just kind of like these little incidents get blown up and it becomes this whole thing. And so that full page ad was sort of the, you know, um, it's something that Chinese people to this day still remember. Like if you mm-hmm. talk to any Chinese person, they know exactly what you're talking about. And same with Hong was Kong. Was that people. 2014, 2015? Uh, no, that was the when locust that ad was 2010. Um, oh, it was 2010. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, since 2010, I think the xenophobia in Hong Kong really has um, sadly increased. Um, mm. And uh, people channel their anger into that. And, um, you know, during uh, the pandemic, um, there were a lot of restaurants in Hong Kong that actually barred mainland people from entering. Yeah. And, you know, so you ask, wow. like, how do you do that? We all actually kind of look the same. Um, we're genetically <laughs> kind of the same, I think. But, like, they would say if you're speaking Mandarin, then you can't right. have a seat. And um, so, you know, absurd things like that. And Dang. Uh, yeah. So that that really just started. I I went to uh, Hong Kong for a month on a reporting trip in 2011, and then my assignment was to just interview billionaires. <laughs> um, and it was it was a very strange assignment. The piece ended up getting killed because I had no idea what I was doing. And I but I enjoyed riding yeah. the escalator up and down. It was <laughs> awesome. But anyway, the 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 one thing that I noticed was that like the xenophobia amongst that wealthy class towards mainlanders was like all they talked about, you know, that they were just like, we shouldn't have this many fucking Gucci stores. It's all these stupid mainlanders coming Mm -hmm. over. Um, You know, like, oh, they, they're just spent, you know, and they sort of looked at them as, as this nouveau riche class and, you know, in an extremely dehumanizing way is that, but I just assumed that that was always how they felt about, (laughs) about mainlanders. Um, You know, the second that mainlanders got money, you know, like before they could not, you know, before 
if they couldn't come in and spend five Gucci stuff, I guess they wouldn't matter about it. So, or they wouldn't yeah. be so mad. But is is it was it around then when when that attitude really started? Yeah, I mean, intensifying. I, I, you know, the people have had weird feelings about mainlanders in Hong Kong like since the beginning. I mean, first of all, Hong Kongers are originally mainlanders, the most of them, and yep. um, a lot of people in Hong Kong were born in China. You know, um, and. Uh, a lot of people in the older generation don't actually identify as Hong Konger. They see themselves as just Chinese people who went to live in a different place, right? And they still have a loyalty and like a sense of investment. Um, and of course, the newer generation doesn't have those memories, and they're kind of um, they they feel very different. But um, before 1997, Hong Kong was way richer than China, and Hong Kongers did have this sense of superiority in general where um, even if it was like a benevolent kind of superiority <clears throat> where Hong Kong people were like, after the handover, we're going to bring democracy to China. We're going to teach them about human rights and the freedom of the press and all these things. Um, and the tables were turned really dramatically. And right after the handover was the Asian financial crisis. And then there was, uh, you know, a housing um, kind of uh, crash in Hong Kong. And then there was SARS and... Um, kind of overnight, yeah, wow. uh, China suddenly started just comparatively being a lot wealthier compared to, mm. you know, not wealthier in absolute terms, but just like, um, yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, resentment and kind of uh, annoyance from Hong Kong people. And we're now at a point where Hong Kong is not just sort of like being uh, challenged culturally, but it's actually being uh, made obsolete in an economic way increasingly. You know, I'm not willing mm -hmm. to say that it's not uh, useful to the CCP right now. It still certainly is. But when you look at the trading volume through places like Shanghai and Shenzhen and so on, you know, like you can tell that China would like to hopefully one day um, not need to use Hong Kong because it's causing so many problems. Um, and so now it's kind of sort of this desperation um, where Hong Kongers suddenly realize, oh, shit, we don't have a place in the world anymore. Um, you know, it's not even that Chinese people are getting rich. It's like, what what are we here for? And so that is what's causing the existential crisis. What, what has it been like during coronavirus, pandem the, the pandemic? Um, you know, the fall, we saw all these headlines about the protests. What's What's been happening since then? Um... People are, uh, you know, um, kind of living their lives, actually. Um, they are social distancing. They have to by law, but uh, everyone's masked up. The death rate has still been very low. Um, and, um, you know, um, unfortunately, the government has also taken this as an opportunity to really uh, push through a lot of uh, kind of politically... Uh, challenging goals that they've had for a long time. They rounded up a bunch of pro-democracy activists, threw them in jail. Uh, they're trying yeah. to re rewrite the legal um, kind of framework that uh, creates separation between Hong Kong and China. And they're just trying to bank on this moment as being a moment where people won't be able to come out and resist. And um, I don't know, it might be working. I wanted to ask you, Wilfred, also about your solidarity work here in New York and in the States. Um, I know you've been working on two things. One is a project, an organizing project that looks at 
bicycle solidarity. So delivery workers and people, sort of non-traditional bikers, like the non, you know, white hipstery, single gear type of biker, I think mm -hmm. is fair to say. Um, and then also during the coronavirus pandemic, importing masks um, from Hong Kong and kind of using that as a vehicle for education and solidarity work as well. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm a part-time delivery cyclist. Um, you know, uh, helps me survive as a freelance writer. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, I deliver food for Postmates and Uber Eats. And I was planning to keep doing it until the pandemic hit. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point, it became just too dangerous, and I stopped doing it. But um, I noticed that a lot of other delivery workers out there, they don't have masks, they don't have hand sanitizer, gloves, and, you know, um, they have to yeah. keep working because they depend on it, right? So mm -hmm. um, just been trying to uh, tell people to <laughs> treat delivery workers as human. It's really as simple as that. But unfortunately, most people uh, never really take a moment to think of delivery workers as more than just the labor that brings you your food. Mm -hmm. so how is it? How has this affected... Um, you know, is, is it, has it been in some ways like a boon for, for delivery bikers? It's been a boon for the Where they get companies. more work at least, or do they get, for the for Uber Eats yeah. and for, I mean, for yeah. those companies? Their, their stock price has been soaring. I mean, they're making a ton of money right now. And uh, there's no bonus, uh, there's no hazard pay for delivery workers. It's the same. It only you're also risking your life, you know, um, people are tipping more, but I won't mm -hmm. go as far to say it's like a boon, you know, people are, um, a lot of delivery workers are getting sick, a lot of people are just choosing to stay home. Um, and um, yeah. way more restaurants are closed, there's huge delays at the restaurants. Uh, sometimes you have to wait for like an hour, it's like standing on the sidewalk, just like waiting with like all these other delivery people crowded around you it's like mm -hmm. horrible yeah so um wow. yeah it's not a the only people it's benefiting are the people in silicon valley who run the platforms mm -hmm. from their offices what do you think it means for the delivery worker organizing moving forward We're, we really need a new model um this is just not sustainable um you know delivery workers don't get workers compensation it's just too expensive mm -hmm. Um, e even independent collectives that have tried to do this can't afford to get workers comp because of just how insurance mm -hmm. companies uh, price things. Um, you, you know, no one gets health insurance through doing this work, but people are getting right. injured more than any other job like in New York, pretty much. Um, <coughs> and uh, so we need to figure out a better way to do this. Um, we're trying to, mm. I'm talking with a couple of friends right now who are uh, kind of in the industry, but also um, activists, you could say. And, uh, you know, we're kind of looking at these tech platforms that monopolize uh, the industry. And we're saying, can we just find an open source version of what they have and kind of disrupt yeah. them, you know, disrupt them disrupting the industry? Can we just like, find uh, a way to cut them out, you know, just let people go direct, but in a way that is still kind of just as good of an experience or even better? Um, I mean, that's mm -hmm. like, you know, we, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't code or anything, <laughs> but <laughs> that's what we're kind of thinking because like, yeah. this is unsustainable. Um, so we're having a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know a lot of taxi workers 
have tried that in different cities as well. You know, once yeah. the, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world came in, they tried to form co-ops mm-hmm. and they built a couple platforms out and the work continues, yeah. I guess. There's no good answer For yet. Sure. For sure. Look, I, I did have a question, which is, you know, Hey, do you, do you think that there is a coordinated effort to make sure that Taiwan doesn't get credit for their coronavirus response? Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there's no way to give Taiwan credit without totally pissing off the CCP. And um, the CCP makes that very clear. But um, I don't know. I'm kind of just like not that interested in the credit question as well. Like I'm kind of like maybe we shouldn't be talking about what country, what state is doing the best thing, because in the end, like all of it is kind of made up. Like it's like sports teams, you know, it's like which team is the best? (laughs) It's like, well, they all kind of trade players and kind of are run by billionaires and like they don't really represent like that city that like the team has the name, you know, yeah, like. This is sacrilege for Andy. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, I was like, listen, I'm just yeah. going to nod and, 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 and think about my favorite. Right. Um, Pick the wrong crowd. How dare you? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, hey, thanks for coming on the show and, you know, stay healthy there in, in New York. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah.